Welcome to the Christian Mysticism Podcast, where we explore the fascinating history of Christian mysticism from the early days of the church until today. I'm Alberto de la Cruz, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Carlos Ayer, the T. Lawrence and Riggs Professor of History and Religious Studies at Yale University. Welcome back, Carlos. Hey, always good to be with you on the podcast. Well, glad to have you on, and I'm glad we're doing it. I'm having a lot of fun with this podcast. And just to let you and our listeners know that our last episode on Meister Eckhart has been, so far, the most listened to episode we've had uh, in the first two weeks that it's been out. So very proud about that, and, and I wanted to commend you, Carlos, on a great job you did on that one. Oh, good. Uh, he's one of my favorites, so it's, uh, it's easy to talk about him. He does definitely have a fascinating story. But I know we got another fascinating episode coming up today. So who are we talking about? Yes, today it's Julian of Norwich, a uh, an English hermit nun who is, is very unusual and uh, has attracted actually uh, more of a following at beginning in the late 19th century, but actually in the 20th century is when she really began to attract attention, even though she was born in the 14th century, 1342, as a matter of fact, uh, just six years before the plague hit, the big plague, the Black Death. Uh, she survived, and she lived till 1416. But she lived as a hermit, not out in the woods, uh, in a cave or a hut, she lived as a hermit in, in a room that was adjacent to a parish church in Norwich. And she, of course, communicated with the outside world. And she received uh, food and, and uh, plenty of visitors during her time as a hermit. But she really did basically uh, wall herself up in this room. It was, uh, let's call it an addition to the church. They used to call those a cell, correct? Yes. Yeah, well, monastic rooms are, are called cells. And actually, there's an affinity between the usage of, of the term in monasteries and prisons. And as a matter of fact, the idea of solitary confinement, you know, that we find now in prisons, modern prisons, which is supposed to be a kind of punishment, right? to be cut off from everybody else is considered a, a mild form of torture. But this is what hermits uh, have been doing since, uh, you know, even before Christianity. Hermits find a lot of peace in their solitude rather than anxiety about not being with people. And what they are seeking is undisturbed contemplation. So this is why they like the solitary life. But Julian of Norwich, actually had a lot of contact with the outside world. She was not, therefore, alone or lonely in that sense. So we know she was a, a hermit. What was special about her? Well, she had a, a series of very intense visions during a very serious illness. And then she wrote two accounts of these visions. And the visions related to the illness were also related to three petitions that Julian made to God, uh, and her petitions were answered. 
And this is where things start to get a little strange. Her first petition was, oh God, please let me gain a stronger understanding of Christ's passion. That's not new or unusual. Most monastics and many Christians uh, would wish for the same thing, especially back in the 14th century. Her second petition is the one that it might seem a little strange. She asked for a sickness unto death while she was still young, which would allow her to experience everything that a body and a soul experience in death, but without actually dying. And why ask for this? Well, she said uh, it was so she could learn to live more mindful of God. And she did get a very serious illness almost died or was at the point of death. And during, during that ordeal, physical ordeal of her illness, this is when she had a series of visions. And we'll get back to those visions. They'll be the main topic of, of our discussion today. But her third petition was also granted to her. She asked for three wounds. And these three wounds, as she called them, were absolute contrition for her sins kind compassion towards others, and steadfast longing towards God. So herself, others, and God. But these three wounds, she says, were granted to her as a result of these visions, which changed her life. Now, we've spoken about some of these mystics and the extremism, for lack of a better term, in their in their dedication. But wanting a sickness until death that's that's got to be one of the most extreme ones i've i've heard yes yes this this one uh uh you know is it's high on the list of strange petitions to god please god bring me to the point of death but don't don't let me cross over not yet but i want i want to experience what what that is and we should notice that she asked that she wanted her body and her soul both to experience what it's like to be uh, at the point of death. So once again, you know, we find this basic uh, binary uh, uh, assumption or, or, or dialectic interchange between body and soul. So when the body gets close to death is her assumption. Her soul too will, you know, begin to see things in, in the afterlife dimension. And she does. So her visions which resulted in, in, in two texts are generally known. There, there are various editions available. The, the original title she gave to them was showings. Showings is a medieval English word, which is equivalent to visions. Christ showed her things, right? But it has been published under the title also of Revelations of Divine Love. And whether it's titled showings or revelations of divine love there are two versions one is the short version the first one she wrote right after her visions in 1373 which is written in the first person singular i that's how she narrates the visions the second one which is longer and contains things that are not found in the first was written 20 years later in 1393 and it's written in the first person plural, we, rather than I. So if anyone wants to get to know uh, Julian, I think the best thing to do is to read the short version first and then go to the second version and see what the differences are, see how her thinking 
and feeling on these visions evolved over 20 years. Now, before we get into her mystical experiences and visions, I'm just curious, did Julian come from a well-to-do family or did she come from from poverty? I know we had discussed in, right. in previous episodes how a lot of these monks and, and nuns had, had to have come from money because a dowry needed to be paid before the monastery would accept them. But did she come from, uh, well, you know, from she, a, from a wealthy family or? Uh, she was, uh, one could say upper class, but she was not a titled noble or from a, a titled noble family. And, you know, this 14th century already, uh, we see the growth of merchant and artisan class in which, you know, if we, if we were to think of what's the equivalent in, you know, 21st century American society, you actually can speak of a middle class and a upper middle class and, uh, you know, the lower rungs of wealthy being wealthy uh, without having noble titles and all the land that comes with noble titles. But, you know, she was, she was not entering a monastery, so she didn't need a dowry to put up her, her hermitage. I don't know the details of, you know, who paid for the construction of this hermitage, but since she was not entering a, a monastic community, she didn't have to come up with it. The thing is, uh, no, she was not poor because she was literate. And, you know, in the 14th century still, most genuinely poor people were, were not literate. So, you know, she, she wrote these in 14th century English. So actually, the anyone who has not tried to read English from that time period will need the modern translation. You know, it's not translated from another language because it's English, but it's so different from our modern English that, yes, uh, it does need translating. And the first version from 1373 shows that this, this, these series of visions that she had uh, were, were life-changing for her. The second one, most experts think, shows that she had transitioned over the two decades from being a visionary, you know, someone who receives visions, to a very sophisticated mystical theologian. And that's, uh, that's where we can um, move on to in our discussion today, because, you know, what were these visions? What were they about? She, uh, in the long text from 1393, and hence the title given to it sometimes in some editions, she called it a revelation of love, which Jesus Christ, our endless bliss, made in 16 showings or visions, of which the first is about his precious crowning of thorns. And from here on in, the visions just keep happening. But she you know, she wanted to get a, a better understanding of Christ's passion, and that voice, she gets it in, in these visions. In most of the visions, uh, it's Christ who's revealing things to her. So it's a very intimate encounter with Christ that she is talking about. But the revelations are, are not, as sometimes people think, revelations are, are kind of prophetic things. No. It's not about like the coming end of the world or this is going to happen uh, and watch out for this or watch out for that. No, it, it's all about the mysteries of the incarnation of God in Christ and the mysteries of redemption. And one of the items that we'll be coming to uh, soon in this conversation 
is what she has to say about sin and the place of sin in human lives and in the lives of Christians. Of course, that's what she's talking about. So like, for instance, uh, in this um, initial vision of Christ with the crown of thorns, again, some of our listeners might find this a, a bit graphic, but that's pretty much what medieval mystics wanted to experience when they were meditating on the passion of Christ. You know, all the graphic details, all the nasty stuff was the, all about his suffering because it's that suffering that, as they believed, his suffering corresponds with our suffering, the suffering of everyone, and is also redemptive. But here's, here's her description of, of that vision from the short text, the earlier one. She said, I suddenly saw the red blood trickling down from under the crown of thorns, all hot, flowing freely and copiously, a living stream, just as it seemed to me that it was at the time when the crown of thorns was thrust down upon his blessed head. So did he, both God and man, suffer for me. I perceived truly and powerfully that it was himself who showed this to me without any intermediary. And all this while she's dying. We have to keep that in mind. Do we know what illness she had? No, no. And, you know, this this is also true of other mystics who uh, end up getting very ill. In some cases, we do know. Like we know, for instance, that St. Francis of Assisi that definitely had glaucoma and all sorts of digestive problems. But Teresa of Avila, someone we have not spoken about yet, but she keeps coming up in, in our conversations. And I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, she also came to the point of death with a mysterious illness that nobody could diagnose or cure. And um, her family thought she had died. And they were preparing her for burial when she came back to life. But we can talk about that another time. Yeah, and maybe I should have asked the question a little differently. Do we know not so much what the exact illness was, or but more what her symptoms were? Uh, not that I know of. Uh, she doesn't go into her symptoms to describe them. She just tells you that you know she was very, very, very sick. So. You, as you can guess, you know, there, there are critics who say that, you know, her visions were, were just delusions probably caused by a very high fever. Uh, you can always kind of try to explain mystical experiences as some kind of medical pathology. That's very common. It's been, it's been going on since the, since the 18th century. But in her case, you know, it seems to me since she had these visions and they were so detailed that it must have taken quite some time, at least a few hours for all these visions to unfold. And then of course, the fact that she remembered them in great detail and could write about them more than 20 years after they happened, that too shows you the intensity perhaps. Critics would say, of course, oh, she's, you know, she's just making it all up. But that that's not really something one can discount. Yes, anybody can make anything up. But in this case, the details, it's the details of the visions that suggest that they were genuine. Because she does say some things that uh, one doesn't find in other mystics. 
and that's what makes her so special and the things these things that she says which interested 20th century christians so much that's what to me at least in comparison to other mystics makes it highly likely that her visions were in fact genuine and it's all about love too these visions it's not just suffering of christ it's the love of christ and i'm going to be quoting from the short text the earlier one after she sees uh, jesus bleeding profusely she has another vision and she called it a spiritual sight of his love i saw that he is to us everything which is good and comforting for our help and here is where the weirdness comes in says he showed me something small no bigger than a hazelnut lying in the palm of my hand i looked at it and i thought what can this small thing be and she got this answer it is everything that exists everything which is made in other words the entire cosmos in the palm of her hand the size of a hazelnut and then she sees in this vision that god had made the entire universe out of love and that it's the same love which is preserved throughout the cosmos and always will be without end she says and this this hazelnut christ reveals to her how much he loves it how much he loves that tiny thing which would you know from god's perspective the entire cosmos is like a tiny object the size of a hazelnut yet he loves it completely fully and passionately so this is a very very again we're back to paradox right a very paradoxical vision because first part of it she sees christ suffering so it's all about suffering and the second one it's all about the love that god has for his creation and that's why christ has to suffer and in another vision she has christ say if i could suffer more for humans i would that's how much i love them so it's a very compassionate christ for whom suffering which is real real suffering is not just you know oh he's god he can't suffer no it's because he became human so this is the mystery of redemption you know it's interesting the vision of the hazelnut is it as you were telling the story it reminded me and i don't know if you ever saw this movie uh men in black the original one. Oh yes yes yeah at the, at yeah. the very at the very end when the camera pans out you know to earth and yes the solar system and the galaxy and it just keeps going out you know the whole entire universe and then it keeps pulling out pulling out pulling out and then you uh-huh. just see everything is a marble yes on a collar on a cat yes yeah yeah and actually there's um i can't remember if it's the first men in black or the second there is a cat carrying around uh, an entire galaxy yeah it was it it was i believe it was the first one huh or maybe it was the second i can't remember now but as you were talking about the whole universe inside that hazelnut i I immediately remembered that that part because i thought it was uh you know it wasn't a the whole movie it was just at at the very end but right i I thought it was a a very interesting way to to look at it it kind of made made you think is like are we really that tiny well the fact is that we are and what's interesting to me 
about her vision is that in the vision, she is holding the entire cosmos in the palm of her hand. It's not Christ shows up with this little marble side or, you know, hazelnut sized cosmos in his hand. No, he places it or makes it appear in her hand because it's, it's the issue of perspective. You know, if it's that small to her, she realizes the smallness of it all. But at the same time, she's allowed to exist outside of it. Yes. Yeah. And there's another very uh, strong paradox. How can she, who is inside, you know, the hazelnut, see the hazelnut? And that's what most mystical visions are like that I have read. You know, they, they need explaining because at the center, there's some deep paradox. Uh, so, you know, point number one, Christ loves the universe. He loves humans. He's willing to suffer. It's all so small, yet it exists because Christ loves it so much. So then uh, she, you know, she goes through a, a few more visions and comes to a vision that now takes us deeper and deeper into the mystery of human existence. And I'll quote, this is from the short text. I saw God in an instant of time. And by this vision, I saw that he is present in all things. I marveled at this vision with gentle fear. And I thought, what is sin? For I saw truly that God does everything, however small it may be, and that nothing is done by chance, but it is of the endless providence of God's wisdom. Therefore, I was compelled to admit that everything which is done is well done. And I was certain that God does no sin. Therefore, it seemed to me that sin is nothing. For in all this, sin was not shown to me. And that's a, that's a very, not just interesting, but unique take on sin as nothing. Especially because since the first century central teaching of the christian religion is we human beings sin and this sin is the cause of all our suffering and you know christ came to redeem the human race from sin and death so now all of a sudden in this vision sin is as nothing she doesn't say it's nothing but that it is as nothing now that's another paradox yes and uh, uh, it gets deeper. It gets much deeper because she also says a few chapters later in another vision, Jesus informed me about everything that was needful to me. And he said, sin is necessary. What? That's a translation. The original English word is behoovely as in it behooves you this or that. You know, it's something that is for the use or benefit or gain for somebody or something. It's been something beneficial, profitable, necessary, required, unable to be avoided. So sin is inevitable, says Christ, but it's also kind of beneficial. So what, what, what could that mean? Well, she goes on to say, the word sin, our Lord brought generally to my mind all which is not good. But I didn't see sin, 
For I believe that it has no kind of substance, no share in being, nor can it be recognized except by the pains which it causes. So once again, we're, we're at this point where, yes, well, sin is not real, but it causes pain. Oh, so where, where does this take her and where does this uh, take us if we're reading her text? Well, and before you go further, I just want to make clear to, to our listeners, especially our, our devout Christian listeners, we're, we're not making a theological proclamation here or, or, or a teaching. We're, we're exploring what, what Julian of Norwich said, and obviously it's not exact in in terms of it's up for interpretation and and she's not with us to to clarify what she meant but i just we're yeah, not coming well, up with that we're not making a theological statement here no and actually for anyone who uh feels that this woman uh might not be too orthodox here's another passage from the text in everything i believe as holy church teaches for I beheld the whole of this blessed revelation of our Lord as unified in God's sight, and I never understood anything from it which bewilders me or keeps me from the true doctrine of Holy Church. And she has never been accused of heresy for this. Well, it, it's a meditation on, on her vision. It's what it is. She can't find sin. But, you know, sin is real and not real simultaneously is what she's saying. Because... God could not create sin, but somehow it's necessary and beneficial for human beings. That's where the paradox gets confusing for many readers of Julian of Norwich. You know, I read some passages from, I've been reading a, a, a book called A Year with the Mystics that uh, I highly recommend. And you read some of these passages from the mystics, and a lot of them are saying that the tribulations we suffer in this world, the pain, the illnesses, the hardships, they, they almost attribute them to God and how God uses them to bring us closer to him. And yes. you can almost, at least for, for me, I can almost see how she's viewing sin as something that brings us pain, and that pain is what brings us to God. Yes, and uh, actually... The, the next passage in the same sentence where she says, nor can it be recognized except by the pains which it causes. Here's the following sentence. And it seems to me that this pain is something for a time, for it purges us and makes us know ourselves and ask for mercy. For the passion of our Lord is comfort to us against all this. And that is his blessed will for us who will be saved he comforts readily and sweetly with his words and says but all will be well and every kind of thing will be well and that's that 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 is the statement by which julian is best known and it's often misused and misquoted what does she mean by that all will be well and every kind of thing will be well Two chapters later, she returns to this theme, and she's puzzled. She's puzzled, so she's asking Christ questions, and, and she says, And so our good Lord answered all the questions and doubts which I could raise, saying most comfortingly in this fashion, 
I will make all things well. I shall make all things well. I may make all things well, and I can make all things well. And you will see for yourself that all things will be well. Wow. That's almost a quote from the letter of Paul to the Romans, chapter 8, I believe, mm -hmm. is verse 28, uh, about all things. God makes sure all things works for the good of those who love That's him. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And, 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 and also, I think it's important to know, Paul also said, and I can't remember exactly where, but when speaking about the thorn in his side, that's right. He said that God replied to him that my strength is made perfect in your weakness. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, essentially, this is not a new revelation, something that has never been uh, taught by anybody before, but it's the way she puts it. And this reaffirmation that all things will be well and saying it in so many different ways. It all works out in the end. Calm down. You've asked me a lot of questions. You've had a lot of doubts. And this is the answer I'm going to give you. All things. I will make all things well. Everything will end well. And, you know, e even if one doesn't believe in God or, you know, any religion whatsoever, one has to admit that, you know, it's a good, good bit of psychological advice when you're having an awful time. To think positively, right? Well, all things will be well. This shall pass. All things shall be well. But of course, this is not some kind of Pollyanna universe that Julian is talking about or, or Christ in, in the vision. No, this has to do with eternal life beyond our life here on earth. So this is all about salvation. So this is the mystery of redemption uh, as explained by Christ to Julian. And how she writes about it is by simply quoting, okay? Quoting what Christ is revealing to her. And she goes on to say this, again, to, you know, confirm her status as orthodox. She says, God showed me very great delight that he has in all men and women who accept firmly and humbly and reverently the preaching and teaching of Holy Church. For he is Holy Church. And then she returns to the subject of sin. And this is perhaps the clearest that the revelations get about why sin is behoovely, right? She says, in each soul which will be saved, and that's a very important qualification, in each soul which will be saved, there is a good will which never assented to sin and never will. For as there is an animal will in the lower part of humans which cannot will anything good, so there is a good will in the higher part which cannot will any evil, but always good, just as the persons of the Blessed Trinity. God also showed me, she says, that sin is no shame, but honor to man. Shame for sin is no more in the bliss of heaven, for there the tokens of sin are turned into honors. And as sin is punished here with sorrow and penance in contrary fashion, it will be rewarded in heaven by the courteous love of our Lord God Almighty. And this is connected to so many scripture passages <laughs> that it, it's kind of hard to list them all, right? But it, it's, again, a reversal 
of what one would expect to hear about sin coming from from any Christian. But like you said before, you know, linking to, to Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans and his thorn in the flesh or thorn in the side. This is good for us. It's not a shame, uh, but an honor. But why does she say this? Because you have to back it up to what she says. In each soul which will be saved, there is a good will which never assented to sin and never will. So in other words, there's goodness in us as part of the package of, of redemption. And, you know, Paul also speaks of this. You know, why is it that, you know, I know what's the right thing to do and I can't bring myself to do it? And why is it that I do the wrong thing? Why do I commit sin? And he's puzzled and, and angered and, and hurt by his own inability to stop sinning. Well, she's saying pretty much the same thing, that deep down, those who will be saved are not consenting to sin. What does this mean? It means that you're going to feel bad for your bad actions. And if you feel this contrition, which she asked for, you know, I want to know more about contrition. Being sorry, begging for forgiveness is such a great thing because the forgiveness is available, is what she's saying. And this is why in heaven we will be rewarded by the courteous love of our Lord God Almighty. I think it's also important to note that I believe it was John who said that anybody who claims they have no sin, you know, they're liars, they're they're That's deceiving, right. they're deceiving yes. themselves and they don't have a connection to the truth. And when you look at all of the saints that are in heaven with God and enjoying communion with God, all of them were sinners. Yes. So it's not really that foreign of a concept. No, it's not. Not at all. It's just the way in which she expresses it that is very, I think it's very powerful. Uh, and, and it's very comforting, too. And it's very different. Yes, it's different. A different phrasing of, you know, teachings that you can find in the New, New Testament, but expressed in such a way that it, it can be very comforting. And, and here's what she has to say in a later chapter. Uh, she says, Our Lord opened my spiritual eyes and showed me my soul in the midst of my heart. I saw my soul as wide as if it were a kingdom. And from the state which I was in, it seemed to me as if it were a fine city. So the heavenly Jerusalem. Uh, in the midst of the city sits our Lord Jesus, true God and true man, a handsome person and tall and honorable, the greatest Lord. And the soul who thus contemplates is made like to him who is contemplated and united to him in rest and peace. And how do you get there? She says, prayer makes the soul like God when the soul wills as God wills, then it is like God in condition as it is in nature. There you have it. Practically all of the mystics that we've been discussing up to now, they're all rolled into one here, <laughs> uh, including, uh, you know, Eckhart's uh, spark of the soul in the midst of the city that's, you know, her soul sits our Lord Jesus, true God and true man, and so on. It's just yeah. amazing. Yes, and I'm also reminded when going back a, a little bit when you first started talking about it, the way she saw in her vision, she saw that God was in everything. And it and it brought to mind Ignatius of Loyola, who a lot of his writings really 
concentrated in, in how God is in everything that we see, that we touch, that we smell, that we experience from the spiritual to to the birds flying in the air, the grass growing in the field, flowers, trees, the food, everything like that. Yes. And, uh, you know, she keeps coming back to that theme in, in both the short text and the long text. And for instance, she says, this is uh, in one of the later chapters, separated by several pages from what we've been talking about up till now. She comes back to this theme, says, oh, wretched sin, what are you? You are nothing, for I saw that God is in everything, and I did not see you. And when I saw that God has made everything, I did not see you. So I'm certain that you are nothing. And those who love you and delight in you and follow you and deliberately end in you, I am sure that they will be brought to nothing with you and eternally confounded. So sin does more than cause pain. If sin is nothing, those who give in to sin and don't feel contrition or sorrow for mistakes they make, they're, they're going to be brought to nothing and eternally confounded. So, there, you know, there are, there are some who have said that in the long text written 20 years later, she hints that there might be universal salvation, but there's a lot of uh, disagreement about this. And, um, the, the weight of opinion is on the side of those who say, no, she's not teaching universal redemption. And uh, for, for our listeners, just so they know, some early Christian thinkers, one in particular, Origen, taught that eventually every creature in the universe will be saved, including the devil. But that teaching was condemned as heretical. So I, I think given everything that Julian has to say, in both the short and long text about wanting to not stray from church teaching in any way. This idea of universal salvation, which has a name in Greek, apokatastasis, a mouthful, but also a heresy. But she does say in the long text, you see, this is the reason that some people speculate about this universal redemption teaching in Julian is that in the long text, it's revealed, she says it was revealed to her that God has a secret. And she says, I saw that out of love, God hides the things which he wishes to be secret. For I saw in the revelation that there are many hidden mysteries which can never be known until the time when God in his goodness has made us worthy to see them. And with this, I'm well satisfied, waiting upon our Lord's will in this great marble, and now I submit myself to Mother Holy Church as a simple child should. So there you go. But this all shall be well, all will be well, all manner of things they'll be well. The beauty of that comforting statement. Yeah, it's almost like a parent telling a small child, don't worry about it when something happens that the parent, being an adult, having the experience, knows that everything is going to work out okay. But for the child, whatever that may have happened, may think it's the end of the world. But the parent comforting the child and telling him, hey, don't worry about it. You're going to be okay. You'll see. Yeah. And we are God's children. Uh, and there, there's no way that we can really fully grasp and fully understand 
the universe and going back to the chestnut, whatever's outside of the universe that's out yes. there. Uh, we just don't in, in our current form as humans just cannot fully understand it. So it, it, it would make sense. And I, and I think it's, for me at least, I think it's important that we realize that these mystics that we talk about and these visions that they have and these things that they see, as far as I know, and correct me if I'm wrong, no mystic has ever been shown the whole entire secret of the universe. They're only given glimpses, a little piece here yeah. and a little piece there, as, as much as they can process. And for the most part, a lot of them can't even process it, maybe may be able to process it in their minds and understand it, but can't put it into words. That's right. Yeah, it's all ineffable and impossible to convey the, the fullness of, of the experience. And that's true of Christian mysticism. It's, it's also true of mysticism in other religions, too. I mean, the whole, the whole premise, uh, the whole as, uh, assumption behind mysticism is that there is a higher dimension, always portrayed or assumed to be higher than anything we can grasp. So she speaks without actually uh, mentioning the sacrament of confession. What she is speaking about is the power of forgiveness of God's forgiveness, God's love, which, you know, and she's so committed to, to the church. It's implicit, not explicit. Part of this great mystery of redemption is that if we're sorry, we are sorry for our sins, we will be forgiven and all shall be well in the end. Another item we find in the long text that we don't find in the short text is her portrayal of Christ as mother and even the trinity itself as mother so god as mother and here's what she says in the long text i saw and understood that the high might of the trinity is our father and the deep wisdom of the trinity is our mother and the great love of the trinity is our lord furthermore i saw that the second person that's the son christ second person who is our mother Substantially, the same beloved person has now become our mother sensually because we are double by God's creating, that is to say, substantial and sensual, the incarnation. Uh, this is something you don't find in many other mystics, this idea of Christ as mother. And I, I have two more quotes. She doesn't really explain what she means. She just keeps referring to Christ as mother. She says, Jesus Christ, who opposes good to evil, is our true mother. We have our being from him where the foundation of motherhood begins, with all the sweet perfection of love which endlessly follows. As truly as God is our father, so truly God is our mother. And so Jesus is our true mother in nature by our first creation, and our true mother in grace by his taking our created nature. So this gets... Um, this gets us to, again, a, a coincidence of opposites because, well, God is addressed as father. Jesus is son, not daughter. But she folds in the two essential sources of love for any child. Father and mother are both loving. But she, being a woman, uh, realizes that there is a 
motherly love expressed by by God and that you know in in God there is no male or female but there is mothering and that too is is beautiful and has made her very popular as you can imagine uh in the 20th and 21st century because very few mystics get into this aspect of God's love being motherly she doesn't seem the type that kind of held back on what she said and kind of threw things out there uh, maybe not fully understanding them herself but maybe some other well, some other mystics would have been a little more cautious in mentioning these things that they can't fully understand for for fear of, right. of being called heretics oh that is true they, everyone has to be on the lookout for uh, people who accuse you of, of not being orthodox but i think it's it's revealing and it makes a some difference that this is not found in the short text it's found in the long text 20 years 20 years that she spent meditating on on those visions it comes out 20 years later uh, so there's some reason that she didn't include it in the meditations uh, uh, on her visions that she wrote uh, when she was younger now julian was never canonized correct uh, no uh, julian has not been formally canonized but there are um many who are pushing for this to happen uh, in the anglican church uh, she is addressed as saint julian of norwich and for some reason that i can't figure out also in the anglican tradition especially she is usually portrayed in icons with cats <laughs> so is she the patroness of cats and cat ladies if so then she would be patroness of my household where we have six cats but if you just google julian of norwich cats you'll see all the images modern day icons right 20th and 21st century icons of julian with cats uh, the ultimate cat lady if any of our listeners out there with cats needed a patron saint for their cats you have julian of norwich that's that's it yes but i i, had, I have no idea what the source of this peculiar veneration is where it comes from or why it certainly has taken off but julian's popularity is growing it has been growing since i first heard of her you know 40 years ago it's, it's a lot more intense now but it, it shows uh, julian shows up in unexpected places for instance she shows up in t.s Eliot's four quartets some of the most beautiful poetry ever written in the english language and in the four quartets she shows up in the quartet named Little Gidding. I'll read it because it's an exact quote from Julian of Norwich. Uh, the four quartets, they're meditations on our relationship with time, the universe, and the divine. It's a very religious poem. I quote now, Sin is behoovely, but all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. The dove descending breaks the air with flame of incandescent terror, of which the tongues declare the one discharge from sin and error. The only hope or else despair lies in the choice of pyre of pyre, to be redeemed from fire by fire. Who then devised the torment? Love. Love is the unfamiliar name behind the hands that wove the intolerable shirt of flame which human power cannot remove and he repeats the line all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well later in, in the same poem 
that's some pretty powerful stuff. It is. I, I really strongly recommend to our listeners that they pick up T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. And um, I think there's much to be found in there that is mystical. It's a very mystical poem. And another one of the quartets in Burnt Norton, here are a few lines. Desire itself is movement, not in itself desirable. Love is itself unmoving, only the cause and end of movement, timeless and undesiring except in the aspect of time. Quick now, here, now, always, ridiculous the waste sad time stretching before and after. That is as mystical as mysticism gets. Quick now, here, now, always, ridiculous the waste sad time stretching before and after. This is all about presence. When we get to uh, John of the Cross, uh, we'll see how he also has a poem that is, says something very similar. And I think T.S. Eliot was actually relying on St. John of the Cross's poem. Well, I think Julian of Norwich has proven to be perhaps the most unorthodox of all the mystics we've discussed so far in our episodes. And truly interesting how she interpreted these visions and really causes the reader or the, the person who's looking into her visions to rethink and look at things from different perspectives uh, in, in terms of salvation, God, uh, the nature of sin, all of those things. Really, it really does make you think. Yes, yes, it does. But, you know, she was never accused of heresy. Meister Eckhart was. You know, and some of his passages from his sermons were, were condemned. He claimed that the, the sermons were, whoever was taking notes did not take notes correctly, right? He too, Meister Eckhart said, I, I, I don't want to say anything that goes against church teaching. That was the last thing I want to do. Being a hermit, rather than like Eckhart, being pretty high in the Dominican order and very visible in that sense, she was more invisible in her own day and age than he was. Yeah, and I think it's important that we note, like Meister Eckhart, she wasn't trying to blaze a new trail or come up with a new religion or a new interpretation of Christianity. She was adding her visions to what was accepted and what the church teaches what Christianity is and mm -hmm. adding her visions to it to give us a whole new perspective, not necessarily to change the teaching. That's correct, yes. And um, her popularity is only going to grow. She, I, I think she will probably end up being canonized, uh, maybe even made a doctor of the church, as, as were uh, Teresa of Avila and Catherine of Siena. So women mystics can end up being doctors of the church. Well, she definitely appears to have, have earned that canonization, and I'm sure a lot of her fans will be happy about it, and perhaps some cats as well. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I, uh, I should, uh, every time one of my cats uh, destroys something, I should uh, remind the cat Julian of Norwich would not approve. Certainly I don't. We have a cat who keeps not, it, we, we can't bring flowers into the house anymore. My wife Jane puts any flowers in a vase. This cat just knocks the vase over, sometimes breaks it. Flowers yeah, go to waste. So he's a good cat in other ways, but. 
he needs some advice from Julian. Oh, maybe he needs some intercession from yes from Julian. And, well, and he needs to be sorry. <laughs> yes, maybe he's taking her her teachings a little too literal. Yes, her visions are a little too literal. Yes, all manner of things shall be well, except for the flowers. <laughs> well, it's been a great journey into the life and the visions of Julian of Norwich, who may sometime in the future be St. Julian of Norwich. So who do you have for us on the next episode? Well, we could go in a number of directions, but I think maybe it's time to get to Teresa of Avila, another, another woman mystic. Oh, boy. Uh, and another great presence. And um, we'll see how much we can cover in, in one podcast. You know, I've thought about that because Teresa Vavila is one of my favorites, and, and I really did enjoy your book on her. There's just so much to her. We may have to do, we, yeah, we may have to more. make that a, a two-part, you know, yeah. split that up yeah, into perhaps. a couple of episodes because there's just so much about her. And not just her visions, just, and I'm not going to give it away, but just how her own ancestry and her life in the beginning is a really interesting tale. Right. And you know, that it might end up being a good way of dividing up our chat on Teresa. One is uh, first is her life and then her, her mysticism. They're, they're inseparable one from the other, but it's one way of dividing up the, the information. Yeah. I think that would work because I think that's the same way you did it in your book. <laughs> Oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> Reading the book, I got hooked on the first few chapters just on her genealogy. So, yeah, uh, amazing facts that you discovered in your research. Yes, but let's not give it away. Let's no, no, no. Let's no, not no. give it away. Cliffhanger. So, let's make this a cliffhanger. Cliffhanger. So tune in on the next episode where we start talking about Saint Teresa of Avila and a family secret that they held during the time of the Inquisition. That may just blow your mind. Yeah. Well, Carlos, thank you for another great episode. And I can tell you, I'm really looking forward to the next one. Yeah, I am too. And we want to thank all of you for listening to the Christian Mysticism Podcast. If you have any questions for Dr. Ayer, you'll find our email address in the show notes. Just send it over and we'll try to answer it in a future episode. And don't forget to click the subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode of the Christian Mysticism Podcast. <music>